0: Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today to focus upon your word, for we know that while many things change around us, the one thing that never changes is your word, because your word is the production of your character, and you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we pray that as we study today that we might be refreshed, encouraged in our spiritual life, that we might come to understand a little more clearly all that you've done for us and what you've done for us, and that in turn we might be able to more effectively, more accurately uh, share this with others, especially those who were not saved, that they may come to an understanding of the gospel and believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 1. So turn with me there to Colossians chapter 1, and we will resume from where we were last week. And this morning we'll move into the next verse focusing on that important, crucial doctrine of understanding our forgiveness. Forgiveness is, I think, a concept today that is often, often misunderstood. Frequently, the gospel that Christians believe that focuses on the fact that we're forgiven of sin is often misrepresented, misunderstood. Within the last few weeks, I've heard uh, two or three people or somebody relate this conversation to me uh, make a comment from listening to those who are not Christians say that, well, you know, those Christians just think that if they believe in Jesus, then, you know, they can do whatever they want to do. Everything just gets, uh, everything is cleared off and, and everything's fine. And this is just a, of course, you know that that is a misrepresentation uh, of the gospel. But it is one that is out there not only outside of the church in terms of how certain, uh, some unbelievers think the, uh, about the, what they think about the Christian message, But it is unfortunately inside the church. It's a manifestation, I think, of, in one sense of the uh, general licentiousness or antinomianism that characterizes our culture, characterizes the drift of Western civilization uh, for the last 150 years or so, but especially in the post-World War II era. We have seen a move from the uh, radical youth movements of the 60s on into the present to just do away with all uh, traditional absolutes and all traditional norms and standards. And just anything goes because once you remove an absolute uh, authority from your thinking, if there is no God and if you are not answerable to a God, and if you were just the product of uh, an accidental electrical discharge on a piece of protoplasm, then uh, it really doesn't matter what we do. And so values, norms, standards, these are great, these are nice for tradition, but this really doesn't have anything to do with how we live uh, on a normal basis. So we have a cultural orientation, a cultural trend uh, to this kind of antinomianism, this kinds of licentiousness, that, that has impacted the way people think about right and wrong and about eventual, any kind of eventual accountability to a higher authority such as God. What's also interesting in the way this sort of comes across, and I'm specifically thinking about uh, the context of, of one person who made this statement, is that this came from somebody who doesn't believe in God. This came from somebody who really doesn't believe that there are any absolutes, yet someone who, on the other hand, and this is the kind of uh, uh, th- th- this is the kind of contradictions we run into with people. On the other hand, they are someone who's essentially pretty moral, somebody who is somebody who is fairly upright, not somebody who you'd classify as as being uh, licentious or somebody who is, is running around being immoral. So the that but that was their sort of misrepresentation or misconception uh about christianity and the they've understood that the message of christianity is forgiveness forgiveness of sin of course you've got another problem there when you bring in sin because what exactly is sin so we have to uh, address that question But it's this issue of of forgiveness that that somehow you just get away scot-free with whatever it is uh, that you do. So forgiveness comes into our study of Colossians 1 now that we're in verse 14. So let me just review the context here for you as we begin into this next section, this next paragraph in Colossians 1. Paul expresses his prayer for the Colossian believers that they might grow spiritually. He expresses that by saying that his prayer for them is that they may may be filled with all the knowledge, uh, with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they may walk worthy of the Lord. See, there's, there's not an antinomianism there. Uh, Christianity isn't saying, oh, you get for- forgiven by Jesus and you can just do whatever you want to. There's still an obligation and there is still a, uh, a, a standard for the behavior of Christians because there is accountability even if we are forgiven by God. So, and then Paul goes into, begins to go into one of his well-known rabbit trails as he comes to verse 12, saying that we give thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And as we studied, that focuses our attention on the future, that there is a future end game, that there is a destiny that the church has, and in that destiny there will be an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. It is not to determine whether we go to heaven or not. It is to determine the role and responsibilities that we have when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom and then on into eternity. So the inheritance has to do with that aspect, those rewards. As I pointed out, we often think of his inheritance as something we get when somebody dies. That's not the idea in Scripture. It's the idea of a possession uh, something that becomes ours. And so inheritance is something that is earned. Salvation is something that is free. And so the inheritance is that that relates to the rewards we have uh, when we are face-to-face with the Lord. And then from that, Paul thinks of that future kingdom. And so he reminds his readers and us that what God is doing is preparing us for that future role and responsibility, he's calling out a, a a key group of people that he is training and preparing for that future ministry in the kingdom. So he says and reminds his readers, he has past tense delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The past tense relates to the fact that he recognizes that both uh, both his audience and himself have trusted in Christ as Savior, and therefore they have been uh, transitioned from the authority or domain of Satan to this future r- role as members of this future kingdom. So it's not that the kingdom is now, but that is what we're being called out for, is that ultimate role in the kingdom. That's indicated by the preposition there uh, The in, in the Greek indicates ultimate destiny. And then, having said that, he comes back to make an important statement in verse 14. Uh, Having mentioned Christ, he says, in whom we have redemption. Now, there's some nuances here that are really important to understand. we read that about in whom we have redemption, I bet 99.9% of you immediately thought back to the cross. And that's true but the word redemption that's used here is also a word that has a future uh, orientation and a future fulfillment. So just as Paul talks about our future inheritance in verse 12, the future role in the kingdom in verse 13, that is realized when redemption is realized at the second coming of Christ. So let's start talking about this just a little bit. Last time, When we were in verse 13, and I put these two verses together, I pointed out that there were uh, several words or phrases here that need to be understood. The first is the word delivered. The second, the concept of power of darkness or authority of darkness. The third is the word conveyed or transferred. The next phrase is the phrase kingdom of the sun. That was the focus of our study last time. The word for delivered focuses on is a synonym really for salvation. It, it it understands that we are in a predicament. We are in a crisis or in a under a penalty and we must be rescued or delivered from that. Second, it emphasized the idea of conveyance is the Greek word methistemi, which indicates a change of position, a change of orientation. That we are born in one condition, and we are changed or transferred into another condition. The point that Paul is talking about: we're born in under the authority of Satan, who is called the prince and the power of the air and the god of this age. And he is the one who has authority over the kingdoms of the world at this point. But we are transferred from being under his authority. We are given true freedom now uh, through redemption. We are given true freedom so that we are now under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul states in Romans 6. We are no longer slaves to the sin nature. We are to be slaves to righteousness. And so we are transferred to this new kingdom, which doesn't come in until the future, but we are in being prepared for that role in the future kingdom. So we looked at that in terms of the doctrine of the kingdom. We've studied this in more detail on Tuesday nights in the Acts series, that the word kingdom in the scripture is used in two senses. One has to do with the universal eternal authority of God over his creation and the second has to do with the outworking of his plan within history where he is establishing his rule and reign on the earth. It began with the first, uh, case of this in the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve as his, as, as his representatives to rule over creation. When they fell, then that personal, uh, indwelling of God, personal, uh, presence of God upon the earth left. It's restored at Mount Sinai through the establishment of the kingdom, the theocracy of Israel. With the disobedience of Israel, it's removed. We're in what is called the mystery stage uh, now where the kingdom is not here, but there is a preparation for the future establishment, which comes at the second coming when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. Uh, which will then go on into the eternal uh eternal state. So that tells us that we have a future destiny within this future kingdom. Having mentioned the Son, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the eternal Son of God, in verse 14, Paul then brings us to a new thought. And you can just see how he, as he says one thing, something significant related to that comes to mind, and he builds on that as Paul is wont to do. He said, It is in the Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, as I pointed out last time, as we look at this verse, we have four words that need to be understood. And these are words that that if you go out on the street and talk to people about them, they are profoundly, profoundly misunderstood. Uh, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, blood, forgiveness, and sins are all words that in everyday language today have been really perverted and diluted so that they no longer carry the punch and the power that they had uh, in in times past, for example, redemption, uh, the is often thought of as just getting a new opportunity uh, in life, just the opportunity to recover from some sort of failure. You now you have failed in some way, and now you have a chance to go in a new direction. But the his the primary meaning of the word redemption in English uh, reflects that of. Of the Greek of the New Testament, that is to pay a price. It is a it is fundamentally an economic term. Uh, those of you who uh, go, use coupons when you go to the store, the act of using a coupon when you are purchasing a product at the store is called redeeming or the redemption of that coupon or the redemption value uh, of that coupon. So English recognizes that, but in everyday jargon we have lost this sense of purchase so whenever you as a christian hear the word redemption or think about it in scripture the key idea that should be coming to your mind is the idea of paying a price it is a purchase concept it is an economic term the next term is the word blood which as i've pointed out in the past is another word that carries uh, a lot of confusion for a lot of people. Uh, the main idea, we've covered this a lot in the past in Scripture, the shedding of blood is a metaphor that is used for death. For example, when God first authorized capital punishment, which is still authorized, he said whoever sheds man's blood by him, uh, man should, uh, by, uh, his blood should be shed by man. The term shedding of blood there represents an illegal form of taking someone's life. Uh, It is legitimate within Scripture. There's about eight different words in Hebrew for taking life. The word that is used in the Ten Commandments, uh, wrongly translated thou shalt not kill, is a word ratzach, which means to murder. And so murder is wrong, taking the life of someone under certain conditions, such as execution of capital punishment, uh, taking the life of someone in combat, taking the life of someone in self-defense. These are not prohibited in Scripture, only the taking of life of someone in the sense of homicide, uh, manslaughter, only those carry penalties within, uh, within the Mosaic law. So, what the scripture defines there it uses this this picture uh, this word picture to depict to uh, depict murder is the shedding of blood, but not all murder involves literal shedding of blood. You can strangle somebody, you could uh, hit them over the head, uh, not cause any kind of bleeding, you could poison them, uh, nevertheless, those would all be uh, acts of shedding blood so when we read about the blood of Christ, this is simply a metaphor for his death. It indicates that it was to be a violent death and it was a death that was uh, the indication would be that it is probably not legal, which was true. It violated both the Mishnahic law code of the of the Jews as well as the law codes of the Romans. So we have redemption through his blood, and then there's this next phrase, the forgiveness of sins, which for all practical purposes in English, looks like it explains what redemption is. It appears to be appositional. Uh, but uh, a lot of people say, well, how, is, how do we understand redemption is the paying of a price with forgiveness? Because forgiveness is usually thought of simply as, you know, uh, letting someone off because they have done something uh, they shouldn't have done, letting them go without consequences. So how does forgiveness relate to paying a price? And it is because we fail to understand that the core meaning of the word translated forgiveness is a word that means eradicate a debt. And so you have the first word redemption, which has to do with paying the price, and forgiveness, which means to eradicate a debt. Both terms are terms that relate to, to economics and are used in an economic context. So redemption is the payment of a price that eradicates a debt, and that is what forgiveness is. But the forgiveness spoken of here is not an economic forgiveness. It is forgiveness of sins. So we have to ask these questions in a little more detail. First of all, what way does redemption equal forgiveness? And to do that, we have to answer the question, what exactly does redemption mean? And then what exactly does forgiveness mean? And then answer the question I began with, and that is the misconception of many is, does that mean that Christians get away with sin? Of course, what I always find somewhat interesting you have to be sharp to thinking is that that the like the person in the and con, the conversation I, I mentioned is well Christians just think they get away with sin well wait wait you know I didn't have the opportunity it wasn't the kind of context where I could uh, say anything uh, Wait a minute, you don't believe in sin so why are you worried? Let's talk about this a minute. Where are you getting this, this idea? If, if you're concerned that Christians think they can get away with sin, what's your concept of sin? That is fundamental. So we have to a- ask that question, what is sin? And then why blood or why death? So a couple of misconceptions about redemption. Uh, for example, in the uh, English uh, English dictionaries, we have these kinds of ideas represented. Redemption means reform. You somehow change your life. Uh, to repair a situation, to have a relationship restored, uh, getting a new chance in life, uh, to be free from distress, or to make a change for the better. Those are more and more common uses, common ideas people think of when you use the word redemption. And it's, I think that Throughout history, Satan has really attacked uh, biblical truth from the very beginning by attacking vocabulary. What was the first thing that he did to entice Eve in the garden? He asked the question, did God really say? Did did God really mean what he said? He's attacking vocabulary. He's attacking word meanings from the very beginning. So when we're communicating the gospel uh, to people who do not know the gospel, people who aren't believers, we need to make sure that that when we use these words, they may be words you're very used to hearing and that you know the meaning to, but that doesn't mean that they hear what you're saying when you use these words. The English meanings that do apply relate to purchasing something back, uh, free someone from captivity by the payment of a ransom price, uh, to release someone from blame or debt, or to free them from, and I inserted the word here, eternal consequences of sin. Because one of the misconceptions when someone says, well, Christians just want to trust in Jesus so they can get away with all their sin, is they don't understand the distinction between eternal punishment for sin, which is spiritual death, and the temporal or even in some cases due to loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, the eternal consequences of sin. There's a difference between a penalty, as I've stressed so many times, and consequences. And that penalty that God uh, God informed Adam about was the penalty of spiritual death. And at the instant that Adam sinned, he died spiritually, he was separated from God. This was indicated because when God came to uh, visit with them in the garden later that day, their response was to run and hide. That was because this separation, this spiritual separation had already occurred and they were, uh, they were spiritually dead. That penalty has to be paid. And it is paid, we believe, at the cross. Jesus paid that penalty But does that mean that consequences to sin are just automatically erased or or vanish? Not at all. Understanding that is very important. So we have all kinds of misconceptions about forgiveness. You hear this especially living in the state of Texas, where, according to the rest of the country, we execute far too many criminals. And so they always get all upset every time... uh, People have an execution, and inevitably you'll find them going out and interviewing the family of of the um, the person who was who was murdered and they will say, "Well, have you forgiven the person who did this, the person who's about to be executed and at that point, you get just a, a myriad of different answers because at that point, what we learn is that people don 't understand what forgiveness is and what punishment is and what it is to forgive somebody but still uh insist that the legal penalties are paid. Uh because we have this idea that somehow forgiveness means that that somehow you got to home base and you 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 grabbed hold of uh whatever home base is and now you get off scot free. That is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means the eradication of the debt, but it does not necessarily mean the removal of the consequences. Adam and Eve were both forgiven by God for their act of disobedience. But the consequences remained. If you go out and you get in your, in your car and you are driving home and you are involved in a, an automobile accident and it's uh, not even your fault and somebody is killed in that accident, the family of the person that is killed may forgive you, but that person is still dead. You, we can't change certain consequences. In, in Scripture, God, uh, God in punishment does not, uh, does not necessarily let us get away with sin w- without the punishment. Sometimes He does, most of the times He does. The fact that most of us are here and still alive and somewhat healthy tells me that God has, uh, God has allowed you to sin in many ways and not brought upon any of us the consequences that we truly deserve for those things that we did. And that's just the grace of God. There are other times when God certainly does bring that upon us. So this misconception is that forgiveness means no consequences is a fundamental cultural misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. And I think that relates also to to many, many problems in many relationships is we just don't understand how to how to genuinely forgive people on the one hand. We don't understand how consequences and punishment and that relates to forgiveness on another hand. So forgiveness has the basic idea, when we look at scriptural terms, of canceling a debt. Uh, we use it that way to refer to a debt. We go to the bank, and uh, let's say for whatever reason somebody pays something off or whatever, the debt is forgiven. Uh, we borrow money from our parents. We borrow money from a friend and we can't pay it back, and out of the generosity of their soul, they forgive the debt. So we no longer owe the debt. Forgiveness also means to, it has a a subjective sense in terms of the mental attitude of a person, and it means to give up any sort of mental attitude sin toward the one who has offended us. To give up resentment, to give up uh, any sort of revenge motivation or any other kind of mental attitude sin such as bitterness or uh, anger or any of these things that just hurt us but they don't have any effect upon the other person. Often you see people, especially if they go through some sort of crisis where they are personally betrayed, then they, they, they spend a lot of time in their thinking dreaming about, wishing for something horrible to happen to the object of their uh, of their anger. And yet the reality is that does nothing but eat them up on the inside and the other person is just going along life just as happy as they can be. And the only person that is being hurt by all of this is the person who is uh, mired in uh, bitterness and anger and resentment. So forgiveness means to cancel a debt, to give up any kind of resentment or revenge. But forgiveness, we have to understand, may but does not necessarily include the removal of negative consequences. That's something completely distinct. Uh, We may or may not release a person from the consequences as well. God may or may not visit us with the consequences of our sin, but that doesn't mean that we just get off scot free or doesn't mean that that forgiveness is just something that um, that we get away with uh, often God will eventually bring the judgment the natural consequences home upon us. He just gives us enough time to uh, enough rope to hang ourselves, as it were. Now we have these two terms here that are used in the verse, redemption and forgiveness. And we have to understand that whenever we talk about certain synonyms that that words have overlapping meaning. Redemption has to do with paying a price. Forgiveness has to do with canceling the debt. And so I've illustrated this in the uh, chart by two circles that intersect at a small point. When you have this phrase, the forgiveness uh, that we are forgiven, uh, forgiven by His blood, we have forgiveness. The for, the um, the forgi- uh, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sin. There's a the forgiveness of sin is appositional. Is explaining a, a a nuance of redemption here, that that redemption is speaking of this eradication of the Of the debt against God, now that brings up the idea of of sin. We have the forgiveness of sin. now a lot of people don 't understand what sin is, especially today they think of sin as soon as you mention sin, they think oh i don't do that. you know sin is something that is really egregious, something like uh, like race often defined socially it 's racism it's uh, uh, child abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, pederasty, whatever it might be, it's something that is extremely heinous. But I'm a good person. You know, I've often heard uh, comments made when somebody gets arrested because they killed somebody, and their family's interviewing. Them, they say, "Oh, but he's a good person." Wait a minute. He murdered somebody. He's not a good person. So uh, we we have to understand that that sin. Has to do with something that is, that is extremely profound. It's not just some narrow class of socially unacceptable things. That sin relates to anything that violates the character of God. So that this may be something relatively small and it may be something that relatively large. If we act upon arrogance or pride or self-absorption, then, then we're sinning if we are boastful in our own abilities as opposed to God, then that's sin. If we engage in mental attitude sins such as jealousy or envy or bitterness or anger, uh, resentment, lust, uh, whether it's sexual lust, materialism lust, power lust, whatever it may be, those are all sins. We all sin. And everybody has sinned, Scripture says, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the it is because there is sin, and that sin is against God. It's not against other people. It is against the standard of God. And because that sin is uh, is defined ultimately as violating the standard of God, there is a debt that we have against the character of God. And that, is, that debt has to be paid before God then can have a relationship with us or before we can have a relationship with God. So we have to understand these two words, redemption and forgiveness. Now, in this chart, I've categorized the two basic words that are used in Greek that are translated to redeem, redemption, something of that order. There are eight different words that are used in the Greek. Uh, Six of them are based on the verb lutrao, and two of them are based on the root agorazo. By adding various endings, various suffixes, and various prefixes, uh, Greek changes the meaning of the word ever so slightly. One grammarian has noted that with each letter that's added to a Greek word, the meaning shifts to some degree, so different aspects of the idea of redemption are emphasized. Lutrao comes from the... Uh, a root, as you can see, I've underlined the L U T R O that's there in all of those uh, uh, English transliterations, and that that is the root, and it has the idea of of um, uh, paying a price or, or, or de- freeing something from the. It's a cognate to Luo, which means to loose or release, and so the idea there is the payment of a price to release something. Agorazo, from the Greek word agora, which was the word for the marketplace or the grocery store, uh, agorazo has to do with paying a price to, free, to buy something or purchase something out of the market. So you have these two groups that are uh, very descriptive words for understanding the transaction that occurs on the cross in relation to our redemption from sin. Now, having said that in terms of these two different words that are used and the different ways in which they they look at redemption, there's another way to organize them, and that is related to the meaning or usage of these words. And so I've done that in this particular chart. The three words on the left, agorazo, lutron, and antilutron, are words that relate to the objective historical payment of a price. That basically just means this is what happened at the cross in 33 AD. This is what Jesus paid. This was the objective payment of a penalty by Christ on the cross for our sins. The three words on the right, lutrates, apolutrosis, ex are words that don't focus so much on the objective payment on the pro- of the price, but on the subjective or experiential application of that payment to the individual. For example, the objective historical payment might relate to the payment of a price to purchase a slave in the slave market. The subjective application is when the slave is released from his... Uh, Captivity or from his from the from ownership. So the subjective application is that which takes place when a person believes. So there's these two different aspects, and this is really important to understand in terms of what the Bible teaches about our uh, the, the forgiveness that God has given us for sin. There's a payment paid that is objective and real and actual that occurred at the cross. But then that payment has to be applied or experienced in the reality of each individual's life, and that occurs when they, when a person believes. Now the two words that are in the middle, the root verb and the root noun, lutrao and lutrosis, can, can relate to either of the two categories, either the objective or the subjective side. Now the word that we have here in, in, uh, Colossians chapter 114, uh, in whom we have redemption is this word, apolotrosis. It's not the word that relates to the objective historical payment of a price. It is a word that relates to having received the application of that payment. This is clear if we look at the context. Verse 13 says, He has, talking about a past reality, eris indicative mood, He has delivered us, This is the reality. We have been, Paul is including his audience with him, we've all been delivered from the power of darkness and we have all been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Paul isn't talking here about the objective payment for sin on the cross, he's talking about the fact that we have all, by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, experienced the application of that payment in our own personal lives. So he's reminding them that we have all received this, this payment. Now, the objective payment is expressed in verses a couple of times. This verse is expressed in the New Testament, Mark ten forty five, when Jesus said, "...for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." See, that's talking about the objective payment of the price. Jesus Christ paid for sin on the cross. That means that sin's not an issue anymore. We'll get into this in more detail. Paul gets into it in more detail in the next chapter of Colossians in Colossians 2, verses 12, 13, and 14 specifically, that the payments made... So there's nothing we can do about that. The payment is made. Sin is not the issue anymore, and it happened historically at the cross. This relates to Old Testament teaching, very clear in passages like Isaiah 53, that there had to be a substitute payment made for our sin. We could not pay the debt ourselves. We were so far in debt, we would make the, um, make the federal government look downright, uh, responsible in the way they use money there's no way that any of us can pay our way out of that debt so someone else had to pay the debt so in Isaiah 53 verse 10 Isaiah says that the servant who comes will his soul will be an offering for sin it will pay a price for sin and Isaiah 53:11 Uh, Again, he uh, Isaiah says, for he shall bear their iniquities. There is a real transaction that occurred at the cross where sin is paid for objectively and historically. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, your sin is paid for. But that doesn't mean because it's paid for that you automatically go to heaven. See, a lot of people think, well, if it's paid for, that means you go to heaven. No, there's an objective payment on the one hand, but there has to be the subjective application on the other hand. This, the word apolitrosis is used this way numerous times, and I think by adding this phrase, the application of, in front of the translation of redemption in these verses where we have apolitrosis, helps bring out this, this important truth in these verses. In Romans 3.24, Paul said, uh, being justified, that is, having been justified in the, in the context, having been justified freely by his grace through the application of redemption. Justification occurs only when the redemption has been applied uh, in each person's case. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul said, But of him... But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and the application of redemption. He's talking about what the Corinthian Christians had experienced, not what they could experience if they trust in Christ, but what they already had experienced in terms of that uh, redemption, the realization that the price had been paid for their sin. And then the parallel verse we have to Colossians one fourteen is Ephesians one seven, which says almost the same thing. In him we have, and put in the phrase there, the application of redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Because what Paul is ta- going to talk about here is because we, when we realize we have truly been forgiven, then that frees us from guilt, it frees us from, Uh, worry, concern about, well, what may happen, it doesn't mean that, oh, goody, I'm just off scot-free because we know there are still consequences for sin. But redemption, apolitrosis, not only has this orientation towards the past in terms of when the objective price was paid and its application in our life, but it's also used in three places with reference to a future realization and fulfillment in Romans 8 23 we read not only that but we also have the first fruits of the spirit that comes at salvation even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body see there the focus is on the fact that we still live in a mortal corrupt body but we're looking forward to the fact that at some time we will have a resurrection body we will have a new body so it is looking forward to that which will come in the future at the rapture for church age believers. Ephesians one fourteen uses it in the same way that Christ is or the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So the fulfillment of that redemption isn't until sometime in the future at the time of the resurrection. And then Ephesians 4.30 also connects the uh, sealing of the Spirit to redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That is future. So redemption not only has a uh, a sense in terms of the p- uh, objective payment price, using other words, but it has to do with the application of that at the time we trust Christ, but that application has a future orientation when we are resurrected uh, with him. So this word apolutrosis has the idea, uh, according to the theological dictionary of the New Testament, of setting free for, by a ransom or for a ransom and is used of prisoners of war, slaves and criminals condemned to death. It is the payment of that price so that they are objectively set free. Uh, initially, and then the opelutrosis idea emphasizes the experience of that release from captivity, that release from imprisonment, and release from slavery to sin. So when we take that and we plug it into Colossians 1:14, we read that it is in, in Christ we have the application of redemption through His blood. That's the ba- the payment price was His death on the cross, and that gives us forgiveness of sin. As I pointed out earlier the word forgiveness is the Greek word aphasis which means to release to liberate to forgive it has the idea of uh freeing or liberating someone from captivity the act of freeing from an obligation uh guilt or punishment the uh, it's pardon it's the cancellation of of uh the cancellation of a debt so it is in that sense it is parallel to and synonymous with redemption. Colossians one fourteen and Ephesians one seven both pointed out that way and use it that way. Interesting. Peter uses it this way when he is giving the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter ten in Cornelius' house. He says to him, that is to Christ, all the prophets witness that through His name, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sin. Notice this is something that. This isn't a forgiveness that occurs objectively at the cross. It is the uh, forgiveness that occurs at the instant of salvation when the application of redemption occurs. In Acts 26, 18, as Jesus is talking, I mean, as, as the Apostle Paul is talking to King Agrippa II, and he's describing what Jesus said to him when he was saved and commissioned him, uh, Paul says that Jesus said that he would be called to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Anybody see anything familiar there? Verse 13 in Colossians 1. Paul said the same thing. He delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood. So he's saying the same thing in Colossians one thirteen and fourteen that the Lord told him when he was saved on the road to Damascus. So that the it's the application of forget, of um, the application of redemption. Now, to understand this, we have to recognize, as I pointed out before, there are four senses of forgiveness. One is that objective forgiveness or cancellation of the debt that occurred at the cross. That's in Colossians 2, 12, 14, what we'll call forensic forgiveness. The debt's canceled. But the one we're talking about here is a second meaning, forgiveness that is directed toward individuals or realized in our lives at the moment we trust in Christ. It's related to the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification and what we call positional uh, positional forgiveness. After we're saved, we still commit sin, so there has to be experiential forgiveness. That's 1 John 1, 9, something we're very familiar with. But the fourth area of forgiveness is relational forgiveness when we are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. It is that second meaning of forgiveness um, directed to individuals realized when we trust in Christ as our Savior that Colossians 1.14 is talking about. And it means that the debt of sin, the guilt of sin, the burden of sin is truly removed. But how do we communicate that in a licentious culture? Because in a licentious culture, they have no sense of sin. Everything's good. Everything's fine. There's no, nothing's really right or wrong. That's just cultural uh, variance, that's just individual opinion. Uh, well, we still have to communicate it, but they know that, just like in the conversation I related earlier. This individual who who's not a believer, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in any kind of absolute, still says, Well, those Christians, they, and that, that, that was a problem for her. Those Christians, they just think they can get away with sin. So you see, at some level, in her soul, there is a realization. That, that there is a, there's something that is wrong and something that is right, and it's not right to think that you can just get away with it. But Christians don't believe that. In Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told, Do not forget the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. God is going to discipline us for sin. We're not going to lose salvation. The sin's been forgiven and paid for by Christ on the cross, but there are still consequences. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. And the point is that forgiveness means, ultimately, the forgiveness at salvation is an eradication of the debt, of spiritual death, which, and the penalty of spiritual death which, ultimate, which ultimately culminates in eternal condemnation that is eradicated so that we can have a relationship with God, but the ongoing consequences that come from sin are often ameliorated by god's grace, but that doesn't mean we get away scot free doesn't mean that uh, just because we're forgiven that we don't ever have to pay attention to it it's not a license to sin. It is, and First John 1, 9 is not a license to sin, but it is an opportunity to recover so that we can continue to have a relationship with God. Next time we'll come back as Paul goes on, starting in verse 15, to focus on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and who he is. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time that we can focus on redemption. What a marvelous thing it is that because Christ paid the price and that payment's been realized in our life, that we are truly forgiven, that there is no burden of guilt or sin that we should have because we are forgiven. That is not a license to sin. It doesn't mean we get away with uh, everything in life. It just means that in terms of our the eternal consequences of sin, we have freedom, we have deliverance, and we have a future certain hope of eternal life in heaven. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. The issue is, are you going to let that be applied to you so that you will experience the reality of that redemption and that forgiveness of sin? All that is necessary is to believe that Jesus died for you. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of somehow uh, doing something to make up for that which you've done wrong. There's nothing that we can ever do to make up for what has been done, uh, for the sin that we have committed. The only thing is to accept the payment that God made for it, which is the death of Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand this, that we may use it more effectively as we uh, communicate the gospel to people and as we live our own lives.